Um, this morning we're on to headlights as um, our warrant of fitness continues. And while we focus sometimes on where the headlights are pointing, I'm going to spend some time this morning focusing on who's behind the headlights. Who's behind them? What is hiding behind the spotlight? What is it? Bob <laughs> well done, guys. Uh, I guess it is Palm Sunday this morning. They're off to Easter camp next week. <laughs> um, yeah, it is Palm Sunday. It is Palm Sunday. So why the palms? <laughs> why the palms? Well, there is a reason for the palms, but I'm not going to start this morning on Palm Sunday. I'm going to go to the day before. Does anyone know what happened the day before Palm Sunday? No. Yeah, you should know this, man. <laughs> John 12, 1 to 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived and Jesus whom raised, who raised him from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, which sounds really not cool, but apparently it really is. Nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is the night before he makes his way into Jerusalem. Now, there's some characters here that we know about. We know about Martha. And guess what Martha's doing? Of course, she obviously hasn't learned a lesson. Right? Well, no, about the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's just getting really annoyed that Mary's just not doing what she's supposed to be doing. And what's Mary doing? What she's not supposed to be doing. So she hasn't changed either. For those of you who don't know that story or don't remember the sermon, I think it was last year that I preached on, this was radical what Mary was doing back then. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
That's not something a woman in her culture was allowed to do. That's how radical this whole Mary Martha thing is. Martha was doing what was right. What her people told her to do. What she believed her Lord expected her to do. Mary had no right to be sitting at the feet of Jesus because only disciples sit at the feet of Jesus. Only those who are being taught that one day will teach sit at the feet of Jesus. It was radical. And I think we kind of lose it here, but this was radical too. We read this and we don't think it's radical enough. Or we don't even think it's radical, but Mary, it's not the actual nard and the perfume that uses. I mean, in the Gospel of Mark, she just pours the whole bottle, apparently, all over Jesus, his hair and his clothes, including a certain garment that one day will be gambled over, that most probably still had the perfume on it. But what's amazing here is that she wipes his feet with her hair. We don't think much of that. But in the ancient world, women did not let their hair down. This was called, well, what's the word for it? Prostitutes would have their hair down. It's intimate. Even in the Greek culture, which was quite promiscuous, women kept their hair up. So this woman had to let her hair down, which is akin to getting naked for the Jewish culture, and then use her hair to wipe his feet. It's fascinating what she's doing here. Nobody would have expected that from Mary. And going on, after a bit of conversation there, meanwhile a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for any, on account of him, uh, of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So while we talk about spotlights and, and headlights and what they do in, in, in kind of laying out the road for us, we actually get to hide behind that light and focus on something other than ourselves. And so the first thing I want to headlight is what is your motivation? What is your motivation for moving forward? I teach outside of this at Arrow, and at Arrow Leadership, I train young leaders on personal vision. It's a kind of a hobby of mine in a sense, and training them to see forward, to look ahead. But I tell them at the beginning of every session, you cannot look forward without first looking inward. Because looking forward, you can cover an immense amount of sin. You can deflect very easily. The motivation here is so important. Because look at this. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Does that not strike you as absolutely crazy? These are the guys that believe in the sixth commandment, which is... These guys are justifying murder. Why? For the good of everybody else. Has that, have you guys not heard that lately? Some great Christian leaders who will accept one person because they're going to do this, even though everything else on this person may not be that great. 
but we'll ignore that because the end result's more important. So if we could just kill Lazarus and kill Jesus, we can get everything right again by our God. What's your motivation? You've lost it. Completely lost it, these guys. One thing is going after Jesus. Now they're going to go after everyone around him. They've lost sight of everything to the point where they will bend God's law to justify it. Have we ever been ourselves in that position? Have we ever found ourselves justifying the outcome, the means? Because at the end of the day, it's good for everybody. That's the challenge we face when we don't question our motivations. Why are you guys doing this? Can't you see what you're doing? Can't we see what we're doing in our own lives? Going on, the next day comes. Because the next day is a big day. The palms are out. People have come along and this is great. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the festival being Passover. This is a big time. Everyone from all the Jews from everywhere are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this real special time. And they're all here and Jesus was on his way and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So while we need to question our motivations, we also need to challenge our expectations. People ask me, why the palms, Rob? What's the point of palms? Oh, it's just to make the ground. No, no. It's actually confusing to some degree. It's like pulling out Easter eggs at Christmas time. That's what's actually happening here. Because the palms are all thanks to this guy. Anyone recognize him? Come on, who's got a head stuff like that with the big ears? Judas Maccabeus. He defeated the Greeks, and for the first time in a very long time, Judah could call itself a country of its own. And when he entered Jerusalem to get everything back right, to, to get the temple you know, to cleanse the temple, the whole thing. The people came out, they brought out palm branches and laid it before him. We celebrate that, or the Jews celebrate that as Hanukkah. That happens in the Northern Hemisphere at the end of autumn. So this is confusing because it's Passover. It happens at Passover where they're pulling out. It's kind of like people pulling out Easter eggs at Christmas time. But there is an expectation. Judas Maccabeus, what he did was he got Israel back. He defeated the enemy. They set him up as the king. He said everything. He put the temple right. The word was put out there. There was reform. There was revival. There was everything. And these people were like, yes. And now they're seeing Jesus. And guess what they're expecting? The palms, as lovely as we think of them and as much as we see them in our Sunday school stories, they're a heavy burden of expectation. The question being, how does 
Jesus go from this a week later to be on a cross? The palms were what the people wanted. Their expectation was a king to throw the yoke off these Romans and these Greeks and these heathens who were investing their land. They wanted the promise back. And the Passover was a great time to be reminded of that, of what God did, you know, at Sinai, what he did in, in, in Egypt when he delivered them out. Here is the king. Hosanna, blessed is he. That's a huge expectation. Now that the crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. (laughs) The expectations of the people as they saw this sign. This is going to change everything. Today we still clamor for signs, don't we? This changes everything. And, and the priests, the guys who should know better, they're stumped. They don't know what to do with this. Well, you kill more people? Is that what we need to do? How are we going to deal with this? It's like our modern day today. Isn't it? It's like our church today, our Our church has always looked upon as this chief priest who just wants to stomp everything. And people go away from church because they're hurt, because their expectations aren't met. Or because, you know, well, some of the chief priests want to kill them. (laughs) And so there's this mixing and motivation and expectation that's just knocking us all about. And the one thing we're not looking at in all of this, they're not looking at, is who is Jesus? What is really this Jesus about? Gary Burge says this. He says, as the gospel story unfolds further, Jesus' failure to satisfy those expectations, whether they be religious, political, or social, leads to a cry for crucifixion one week later. In what manner do we likewise use Jesus to fuel our own expectations for social and political change? Do we ever take up the name of Jesus and attach it to our own agendas? How challenging is that? How challenging is that? When our motivations aren't questioned, when our expectations are unchallenged, our direction, doesn't matter where you put the spotlight on, will go way astray. Inevitably, it will just go in any direction. And the direction will be yours, really, not his. It's easy for us to lay the blame at other people, but here it's about you and me. It's us. It's our call. We make the call. We need to be challenged by our motivations and our expectations when it comes to church, when it comes to life, when it comes to God. Interestingly, as the story goes on, and this is fascinating because then Jesus encounters some Greeks. I mean, the very heathens that the Jews want out. 
And he gets to this point where he meets the Greeks and these Greeks are like, hey, they come to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and because he's Philip, he's most probably got some Greek heritage. They come to him with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And so Philip went to tell Andrew and Andrew and Philip went to turn to tell Jesus. I, I kind of wonder how funny that is. Why didn't he just go straight to Jesus? He's like, oh, I got some Greeks here. They want to talk to Jesus. I'm like, I better talk to Andrew about this. Andrew, oh, come with me because I don't want to be alone with Jesus when I'm telling him this. These heathens want to talk to you. They're Greeks. What are you going to do about that? Oh, well, let's have a chat with them. It's fascinating that Jesus says the things that he says to the Greeks, to these heathens, not to the big crowds that are all there waving their palms, but to these other guys who are keenly interested in wanting to know and speak with Jesus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is the first time he says it in the whole gospel. Because every other time he says, he's like, hey, my hour has not yet come. And he says it again, leave me alone. My hour hasn't come yet. But now he's saying, my hour has come. So something's changed. And he says it to these Greeks. And not only that, he says this, he says, hey, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And we all say, yeah, that's Jesus. He's talking about his death. He's talking that if he dies, then there'll be all these seeds. But I don't think he's just talking about himself here. He goes on. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he actually then says, it's not just about me that I'm going to go die. You guys, you all, listen to this. And then he goes on, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be, and my father will honor the one who serves me. And he says it to these bunch of heathens who have come into town because of this big festival. So when it comes to direction, he's making it really clear. Get the spotlights out and focus in on me. Create your visions, create your plans, but make sure I am right in the middle. When you get your camera and you push your little thing to focus in, make sure that point that you focus in on is Jesus. No need to question motivation there. No need to challenge expectation. It's simple. It's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, really that simple, Rob? No, obviously. It's difficult. Because in the picture of things, we see so much other things going on in our lives. So much going on. So it's hard sometimes to focus on Jesus. And it's hard not to get angry when our expectations aren't met. And who's really going to be challenging our motivations anyway? Because we don't judge each other. Because we are all priests before God, there is no distinction as secular or sacred. In fact, the opposite of secular is not sacred. The opposite of sacred is profane. In short, no follower of Christ does secular work. We all have a sacred calling, and that is to focus wholly and fully on Jesus. 
And sometimes we'll waver and sometimes we'll get off track and sometimes, you know, we humans, we just do our thing. We all do it, guys. I, first amongst all of you here. First amongst all of you. I have to preach this sermon. This morning I woke up thinking, couldn't we have an extra two hours? Why can't it be two? Maybe even three. Give me another day. My motivations. Motivations must be questioned, and we must allow people to question our motivations. There's nothing wrong with that. If they love you and care for you, let them. And you do the same. Because so easily our motivations get hijacked. We, we, we got the spotlights on what we want. We're looking at the places we want to see. And that takes our eyes off Jesus. And we run down the road. Our motivations were good. No, they weren't. Because you wouldn't end up there if they were good. And then our expectations must be challenged because obviously if we got the motivations wrong, where are we ending up? If our motivations are constantly questioned, our expectations constantly challenged, hopefully that will keep our headlights on Jesus. You know? <laughs> I was driving the other night. I, where was I? Elders? Was it Elders? I think I was coming home. And, you know, you come uh, Avalon Park. And you come around and you're coming off the bridge from, from, from the highway. And it's dark, it's late. And, and the guy on the other, other end obviously had his high beams on. And as it got closer, you know, you're just going, dude, dude, your high beams, high beam. And it's just, you know, for the next, I don't know, mile or two, I'm blinking and all I see is lights. Sometimes that's us. We don't realise where we're focusing our lights on. And either blind ourselves or blind the people around us. You didn't think I was going to preach a sermon like that on headlights, huh? Think I'd be talking about vision and looking forward. But this is actually about us today. And actually this whole series is intimately about us, about you, about me, and, and our relationship with God. My hope for you and for myself, for all of us, is that we continue to just focus those headlights on Jesus. Because if they're on him, everything's okay. I know that's simplistic. But there is actually nothing simplistic about that. Because at the end of this week, Jesus will be hung on a cross. And all his mates are going to be sitting there going, what's going on? All of them are going to be stopping and saying, what do we do? Our expectations have been dashed. So what was our motivation to begin with? And they had to re-examine that. They had to stop and hide in a room for a while while they were remembering that last night of what Jesus said when he took bread and he, and he broke the bread and, and he said to them, this is my body. And they just thought, hey, this is good bread. Cool. 
we're celebrating the Passover, but Jesus had other motives, other intentions, saying, what is this about? And he said, this is my body. And just a day later, they saw his body broken, just like the bread the night before. And I was like, oh, he said that. But it didn't stop there. His bread symbolized his broken body, the wine, his blood that was poured out for us. And we always think of, I don't know, communion being this sterile, well-placed little cups and little pieces of bread set for us. But it's messy. It's messy. And so when I say, keep your eyes on Jesus, it's not simplistic. Because this, this is what it cost. His blood poured out for us. His body broken for us. His motivations were to bring salvation for you and me. And his expectation is that we share in it. I pray in this moment as we just stop and take communion together, that while it's served so nicely to us, that we're reminded what it cost our Lord. That we're reminded of who we need to focus on. Jesus. It's not a moment to be sad. Actually, it's joyful. Because we have hope. And that in amongst of all this mess that we're in, he cared enough for you and for me. Amen? I want you to take your time, come up, grab your communion, sit down. The team's going to come up and play. They'll do their thing. But you take your time with it. You come forward. Let Jesus be refocused in your life. Let him be your motivation. Let him be your expectation. Let him be the one. I see the King of 